Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. When an extraordinarily talented man develops cancer and puts his mind to making a difference to patients with a similar condition, that's a story worth telling. It is my pleasure to bring to your attention the one and only Brad Power. You're very, very welcome to the show, Brad. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today, particularly as you are a disruptive force in an industry that desperately needs disruption. But I don't want to start there. I want to start with your journey as a patient. That started some years ago when you were diagnosed with cancer. Do you want to tell us how that unfolded, please? I was on holiday. I was in California. I grew up in California, but I am currently located in uh, New England. And anyway, I was on holiday near Lake Tahoe and was experiencing belly pain. I couldn't sleep at night. If I tried to lie down, I couldn't sleep. So I, I, the only way I could sleep was sitting up in a chair. And so I had, anyway, I had extreme belly pain and it went on for several days. And so, you know, I'm a stoic, supposed to be a tough guy. But at a point I said, I should get this checked. So I went to the emergency room at the nearby community hospital and told them my symptoms. They did a scan. And, you know, I'm thinking, you can imagine, you have belly pain. It could be any one of a hundred things. You're a doctor. You probably know what those things could be. But I'm thinking probably not something I ate, but maybe gallstones. You know, I don't know. It could be any any one of a zillion things. But the physician comes back and says, we think you have lymphoma. And as he says it, he has this very concerned look that says, I've just delivered the nasty word cancer to someone. And is he, is Brad going to break down? What he did know about me is that my friends said that I have uh, elements of Dr. Spock of Star Trek fame, which is very rational, logical. And so I say, hmm, okay, that wasn't what I ex- was expecting. I don't really know what lymphoma is, but I sort of do. And what do I do next? Thinking, okay, now I've got to get it treated. I'm in California. Is this a sort of an emergency situation where I'm going to go take myself to Stanford or UCSF? Or I'm going to go back home to Boston and go to uh, Mass General or, or Dana-Farber? But that was immediately I was thinking, okay, I need to get treated. And then the other aspect of my situation, which, which was quite fortuitous, is that I was at a, a, a family camp. And one of the people there, a longtime friend, was a oncologist from Stanford. And so I brought my pathology report back. I've got the, gotten this devastating news, lymphoma, don't know what it means. And I hand it to him and he looks at it and says, well, as these things go, you're pretty lucky because there's a course of treatment for this. There's a standard of care. You're going to be okay. I'll see you in a year. And so what I got was this thing, you're going to go through the chemo valley of death. You know, it's like if you had a hip or knee replacement. You know, you're going to have to go through therapy and get recovery, but it's a prescribed course. They know what is going to happen. And I'm a tough guy and I'm going to be on the good side of that and I'll be back in a year. And so I went into it naively. Turns out it was, there was, you know, like 60 to 80% that was the likely scenario. There were some other scenarios were not quite as rosy, but I went forward just thinking like, oh, this is just going to be like anything else you have to have done and I'll go through it. And so I was very lucky that. I was, you know, diagnosed and didn't have time to really stew about the normal issues that patients deal with, which is confronting your mortality. Even as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking the smartest guy on the Starship Enterprise 
was Mr. Spock. Now, clearly that is the case. You're a smart man. You're resourceful. You've got a lot of opportunity to explore your options. For many, many cancer patients, that is not the case. And in the time since your situation, and first of all, I'm really thrilled that you're here to tell the tale and I'm thrilled that it went well for you. How do you think that somebody getting that diagnosis today is responding and what are their options looking like? Well, of course, I recognize that I'm very abnormal in in that way I reacted. I think my belief, my understanding just from the research I've done is that probably more than half of people when they hear the word cancer are catatonic. They basically can't hear anything else. They're emotionally distraught. They're thinking about all the ramifications of that for their family, for themselves, for their future, whatever plans they had. They probably have no idea what it means medically. There are financial issues that that likely has. So it's just a a huge bolt out of the blue that disrupts whatever thoughts you had about what your life was going to look like. And so most people are just overwhelmed and have no capacity for any of the stuff that I was on to, which is, what is this disease? What does it look like? What do you do about it? What are the treatment options? What, are, what, what's, you know, what, what is your likely path through whatever treatment you're going to have, et cetera? Those, I was immediately into those kind of hard, logical, analytical sorts of things. But most people are more emotional. And with that emotional reaction to something like this is probably going to be one of being feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, I think that describes it well. And you clearly have met people in this situation who, who are overwhelmed. Okay, enter into this, the new Brad Power, the Brad Power who's out to disrupt. Where did you start that? There was the famous conference at which you stood up and said, my disease is not being sequenced. I'm, I'm really not getting what you're saying is gold standard treatment. Where did you go from there? How did you, how did you develop this movement? Well, I'm uh, naturally oriented towards learning and educating myself. So when I was diagnosed, I wanted to learn more about my disease and, and about things that I might do by exploring that disease and how it was going to be treated that I could pass on to others. I had at the time written over 75 articles for the Harvard Business Review. I was a consultant by background. So I'm the kind of person who likes to break things apart, figure out how they work, and then come up with a solution. And then with my writing, then sharing interesting things that I've learned or seen or done with others. So I was thinking that I could bring that skill set. in just in general terms, I could bring that skill set to help others who would follow. That would be a contribution I could make. And that came out in part because of this conference that I attended on personalized medicine at Harvard Medical School, as you were describing, where one of the Dana-Farber leaders who was of the conference stood up and said, we sequence all of our patients. And at the time, I was sitting in the audience and I was bald from the chemo and I was, you know, several months into my treatment. And I I stood up at the classic Harvard amphitheater with, you you might have seen, like you can imagine a movie, microphone on one side, microphone. So I go to the microphone on the other side and I say, I deeply respect your institution and I'm sure what you're saying is the actual strategy that you have and policy, but I'm here to tell you as a patient that I have asked my oncologist six times to get sequenced and it hasn't happened yet. So despite your policy, it's not happening at the front line. And the number of people at the breaks walked up to me and said, you're a patient, you have a voice. Thank you for 
put you know sprinkling cold water on this raw raw conference of people that are touting personalized medicine you really have a platform to make a difference and so i felt like it was god calling me i sort of i look up to the sky and said this is this is my calling this is what i need to do because at the time i was pursuing innovation i know you have an interest in innovation i was pursuing innovation sort of wherever i came up whatever shiny penny i was looking at artificial intelligence and and uh, the ways that it was being applied and i saw that that could that same sort of of uh, thought process of big data analytics computers that could personalize serving an ad to you and me on facebook could similarly be used to personalize medicine so i was coming from that naive perspective cross industries but i decided that if i could focus on healthcare and cancer in particular that a lot of the perspectives that i had would be applicable and perhaps might be useful and so i decided to focus on helping people with a cancer diagnosis and bringing the skills that i had around process innovation to that domain what does that look like what would that mean for a patient if they would reach out to you with with this kind of need the way i look at it i'm again i'm a process analyst so if you look at the process of a patient making a decision about their treatment they basically fall in my view into three buckets those that fit the standard of care so my case diagnosed lymphoma we have a standard of care to treat that it's a chemo cocktail called archop okay great maybe that's 30 40% of people then there are people for whom that doesn't work where they're still scrambling a bit and then they can get into clinical trials and if you're in clinical trials there's a wider menu of of treatment options that are, that are available to you and they can be personalized more and they can be perhaps less invasive if they're in immunotherapy so there anyway there are more options for you and they can have attractive properties and that's going to impact i think 5 to 10% of people but then there's a category of people so those people there are people that are trying to get everyone to use the standard of care and you know let's get we know what the standard of care is adherence to the standard of care today let's say is 60% let's get that to 75% that's a noble initiative i could have done that thing that's my background in process process improvement I could have focused there. I figured there were people who were doing that and I'm not interested in improving the status quo incrementally. I'm interested in in breakthroughs. The second category would be making more people aware that there are clinical trials and getting them access to clinical trials and a lot of people who do good work there. I felt that wasn't something I could contribute to. But what I felt I could contribute to was a third category which is people who don't fit in the standard of care, don't fit in clinical trials, but are really the medical system has said to them there's nothing more we can do for you or there's nothing we can do for you almost from point of diagnosis if you have pancreatic or ovarian cancer diagnosis the standard of care is the standard of failure as we like to say it is not a standard it's not a treatment option that's really viable if you want to have one so for those people either they've been through multiple lines of treatment they've run out of options that way because they've exhausted the standard of care they've exhausted clinical trials or for those who get a diagnosis that puts them already in a category which is the medical system doesn't have good options for you i thought those would be the people to help and it's in the, it's in the zone of of chaos it's in the zone where there isn't evidence to support an obvious choice you're in the zone where you're kind of standing on shifting sands or thin ice or skinny branches whatever you want to call it that was the area where i felt that i could make a difference and help and the notion that we could have a hackathon which was something that i had run into in the domain of software where essentially it's crowdsourced you get a crowd of people to help figure the thing out and it's 
many minds can do a better job. Many people get a second opinion, but that's just one person helping with that second opinion. But this is the notion of, let's say, 20 second opinions and the notion of a process where you get a crowd that is able to do the best job possible at coming up with the treatment option for an advanced cancer patient with a very, very difficult and complex decision. So you'll have some examples of cases where this has worked. Give us a, a pen picture of that. Saying that it has worked is, you know, depends on what working is, what good is, what your outcome is. Because all patients, particularly with a cancer diagnosis, myself included, even though I had a straightforward diagnosis and a straightforward treatment, it's always lurking in the background. So you're, it's never like done. It's not like you can say, you never use the word cured when it comes to cancer. You learn like a durable response is about as close as the words that you would use to describe it. So what you can say is patients who are confronted with a very difficult decision about their next best treatment, we can, through the crowd exercise and through working with clinicians, we can arrive at the best next treatment that they can have confidence in and that they can have a good sense that this is their best treatment option. It may not work. It may work for a while and then not work. We're not promising that it is a cure, but it's the best next. So that's what the hackathons have been able to do. They've identified more options that that were not on the plate previously for that patient. So novel therapies, things that are just coming out of research labs, things that are even preclinical, they aren't even in clinical trials. We can identify those very leading therapies. There's a whole, as you know, there's a whole volatile world of new treatments that are being developed seemingly daily. Um, So we can get access, we can identify those, prioritize them, and then help get access to them. So that's what the hackathon has been able to do. That's fantastic. And how many patients are involved in that kind of process now? I've done three. This all was kind of, I sort of fell into it through a, uh, a happenstance conversation with a well-known leading metastatic prostate cancer patient, Bryce Olson, that was in January. Uh, We started in December, just before Christmas a year ago, almost coming up on the one year. And then two other hackathons were run, uh, one for Linnea Olson, a a non-small cell lung cancer patient, and then one for Casey Altman, who is a a young woman with a rare sarcoma, so a rare cancer patient. So I've, I've done three incredible learning with all of them, incredible learning across each of those hackathons. And we're hoping to scale it. I have my strategy is, or my hope, my aspiration, my delusion of grandeur is to both expand, I call it horizontally by identifying patients and running hackathons in other cancers, and then also scaling it. So going, I call it my vertical strategy, which is to say, if we've run a hackathon for a patient, then other patients with a similar profile can basically follow in their footsteps and can look at the tests that that they would identify are the ones to take, the treatment options and prioritize them and look at the experts in that field and look what the experts have to say. I completely understand how patients might want to be involved in the hackathon. What about the other members of that team? So oncologists and scientists, have you found them willing to engage? One of the learnings, which there are half a dozen probably, is the notion of what I would call clinician engagement. You mentioned in your remarks earlier that you can go to conferences and it'll be about patient engagement, how patients can become more activated, more engaged in their care. 
we've actually uncovered something which is, I, I think, kind of ironic, but it's called clinician engagement. You would assume that clinicians are engaged, but it's hard to involve clinicians in this sort of exercise for a variety of reasons. Suppose that you're the treating physician for the patient who goes into the hackathon. So you're now going to have dozens of people second-guessing and questioning your every decision. So why would you subject yourself to that? You wouldn't want to. And they're all naive and stupid anyway, because you know, you're much smarter. You've trained for perhaps decades in this field. How could any unwashed other patient, for example, with a disease or anybody else, possibly have anything to say of value that you wouldn't already know. And maybe you're publishing something and, and you don't want to uh, release it to the world through this hackathon. Uh, you want to publish it in a journal because that's how you're going to get ahead. So our institution wouldn't like it very much if you participate because we get paid for doing that sort of thing. So why would we want to do this thing? Because all the ones we've done are for free. And there's a process for doing that anyway, if you wanted to, which is called get a second opinion. You can talk to my assistant. You can get a schedule an appointment with. So there are, are quite a number of reasons, all of which we heard, why clients would not want to participate in this. Countervailing that is people that are selected through you know, Darwinian selection, they get into healthcare, do so because they want to help people. And if you put out a cry for help, you say, patient X needs help, your help. Most healthcare people are people and they will respond. So that's the positive thing that we've found is that people will come together to help when you put out a a cry that says, this is a patient, they need your help. And there's there's a little bit of, uh, also a little bit of publicity that comes with it. Hopefully, that's one of the things I found. That's why I'm very keen to speak with you today and other opportunities to publicize what we're doing because it helps that the people that participate perhaps get some credit for the the contributions they've made by, by being getting some publicity. We're trying to formalize that also by finding opportunities to put some of this into publications. I get that. And I can see how somebody might think, this is a difficult case and I want to be associated with it. It's like criminal law, isn't it? It's like a capital case where somebody is in trouble and it's, it's thought that this person's innocent. You will get lawyers who will do it pro bono. They'll do something to help that person, hopefully. And it happens. We know it happens. And here's a, a similar case. Scaling that's going to be a challenge, isn't it? Because you're going to need a lot of people like that who are prepared to do it, who are going to be moved by those stories. And the other thing is, how do they find out about it? How do they know? A lot of doctors don't spend time on social media. How do you get the message out there? few answers. One is that one of my other, along with being like Dr. Spock, one of my other personal attributes is, is someone who collects people. So, you know, they used to say, in the old days, you would say someone has a very deep Rolodex. Well, today it's all electronic, of course. But what, if I go to a conference and I see someone interesting, I reach out to them through LinkedIn and I tag them as being what I call a cancer hacker. And so over time, I've collected over 700 people and I'm adding them all the time. You're on the list. So when, when something like a hackathon comes up with a new one, as, as I've got a couple on the wings, I will send out a blast message saying, hey, we're going to do a hackathon for this ovarian cancer patient. Do you know, do you or anyone you know have something that might be a good contribution to this exercise? And again, people come forward. So it's, it's, um, kind of the, the viral approach of social media that I, that I leverage. The other thing is that 
the patients that we have selected, the three patients that I mentioned, all are very articulate, very well-known, have a social media presence themselves, know who the who's who are in their area, and are the kind of people that just engender followership. They're leaders, and people want to help them. They're very, very nice people, and their stories are compelling. And so they bring community with them. It's the community that they've already been working with. So every one of those people, half of the people were, I think, people that they brought to the table, and half of the people were people that I was able to help get introduced to what we were doing. So it's the power. You know, We probably couldn't have done this 20 years ago there, there, if there were not the social media, the online social media tools that we have today, but today we can the world is changing so rapidly, isn't it? They, that technology allows us to... I mean, here I am in Australia, you're over in the States, and it's not a problem. It's like you're, you're in the room next door. And that's the fantastic thing about technology. You're right, does, has boosted your prospects dramatically. So where do you see this going? You've had three patients uh, go through this process. You're thinking about scaling. Where to from here, Brad? The horizontal part of doing more of the same for different patients is obviously is pretty easy. I got, got the infrastructure, you were saying the technology, the systems, the processes to do that. Not difficult to do the next one. The scaling is, remains a riddle. The scaling and trying to find a sustainable business model that democratizes this access to this kind of brain power is, is still a challenge. You know, obviously it's very inefficient. It's, it's, it's very effective but very inefficient to have whatever 50 or 75 people working on something over an extended period of time when you would, if you were doing multiple patients. So we are thinking of running experiments with multiple patients, like a cohort of people with a similar diagnosis to see if we can scale it that way. I'm working with a couple of people at the moment. Marty Tenenbaum is a founder of Cancer Commons. Cancer Commons has been providing second opinion type, virtual second opinion type information for patients on a philanthropic for free basis for a decade or more. So I'm working with him because his problem is, can we come up with a sustainable business model that pays for itself and isn't dependent on philanthropy? So can we do that? And I've also been talking to Jason Sager, doctor who has a a concierge cancer practice. And his challenge is almost from the reverse side of the spectrum, which is he has a very good service, but it's only can be paid for by people who can pay, let's say $10,000 a month. So it's high net worth people that can pay for a concierge service. Well, that's, that works, but that's not being made. He wants to make it available to more people. So how could you encapsulate a lot of the knowledge and the process of what's going on, automate it such that it could be available at a much more reasonable price point and to a much wider audience. So we're working through from those two perspectives and, and, and other people are involved in conversations to figure out how we could design something that would be have a sustainable business model. That means that there would be people who would pay so that it's a, it's a viable business and yet also be accessible to people. You would not want to exclude people who could not afford whatever that price of admission would be because it's, it's, it's about life and, and health. Innovation often starts at the edges and then moves into the mainstream. And this is exactly what you're doing. I dare say you're having some fun designing something that potentially could solve a very, very big problem. 
and then finding a way to make it generalizable, to, to change the way healthcare delivers itself to the patient. This is what we urgently need, isn't it? We wouldn't need all of this if the health service was able to deliver today what this can do for people by engaging experts internationally to solve one person's problem. Talking about democratizing science and making it more readily available to everybody. Are there times when you think to yourself, there must be an easier way to deal with this issue or or an easier thing that I could be doing with myself? You've bitten off a huge issue here. In my consulting, I largely worked, this is over multiple decades, I largely worked for large, they're called incumbent organizations, FTSE 100, Fortune 500, you know, the top large corporations. And what I would say is that most of the time we failed. Innovation is not something that large organizations do naturally or well. They know how to incrementally improve and they know how to hold on to a franchise. So it's like General Motors gets lucky and they have a a leader and a time where they grow to have a dominant market share. And then the rest of the time they hold on to that market share and it takes them decades actually to die. So I don't think that the large organizations in healthcare, which is very conservative, are the places where disruptive innovation is going to come from. I've followed the work of Clayton Christensen, the famous person who discovered or or popularized the notion of disruptive innovation, was a neighbor of mine and, and a bit of a friend. And so he he's chronicled this in great detail. And, and basically, it argues it's called the innovator's dilemma. It's basically, incumbents don't innovate. So if we're looking at healthcare, and if you're a patient and you say, I want access to that radical next approach. If we were to wait for the innovation process or the improvement process of healthcare, what is it? It's the randomized clinical trial. How long does it take to do a randomized clinical trial? Oh, about a decade and a billion dollars. And how fast does Silicon Valley innovate? Okay, Google can run an A-B test in about three minutes. Okay, so three minutes versus a decade. You know, We need more three minutes in terms of our improvement cycles. Therefore, We need more tech thinking. We need more Silicon Valley thinking. We need more startup thinking to disrupt the system because the incumbents, whether that's providers, payers, or pharma, they're going to improve, but they're going to improve at at glacial incremental speed. Whereas what the world needs as from the perspective of patients is disruptive innovation, fast, big scale change. And so I believe that that's going to come through startups and the startups that I think Uh, or that I'm interested in helping are the ones that are doing things from the patient perspective, which are education, navigation, and community. So education, tell me about my disease. Like, well, how, what, what, like, I need to understand more about this lymphoma diagnosis that I've gotten and what it means. Navigation, how do I find my way to the best treatment options, the best uh, doctors, the best, the the best treatment. And if, you know, if the, if, Cancer is increasingly a chronic disease. How do I monitor and maintain my health post whatever the intensive period of treatment is? And then community, finding people like me who also have the disease that I can share and learn from. So I, I want to support startups that are doing those three things. I think that says it all. I think that's a fantastic answer. If anyone could do this, Mr. Spock could. And Brad Power, you, you picked the right hero there. I absolutely speak like the man himself. And I have no doubts that you are making a difference. And I have no doubts that this will be the step in the direction which we need to go. As a healthcare practitioner, I completely understand that we are not doing the things that we 
promised to do because we are too slow to respond to the changing needs of our patients. It's been an honor speaking with you, Brad. Let's do this again really soon. My pleasure as well. I I really enjoyed it and look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thanks. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.